I'm your host, Stephen Gutteridge, and welcome to Mid-South Moments. We welcome back Phil Stegall to Mid-South Moments this week, and we'll move straight into our chat on the April 21st, 1984 episode of Mid-South Wrestling. Thank you for having me. It feels like it's been too long since we last spoke, which is a little bit of a wink-wink, nod-nod for people in the uh, in the podcast game who, who, know, who might be able to speculate that we may have just taped two episodes one after the other, but I couldn't possibly reveal if that was true. You're, um, so, you're exposing <laughs> the business. The K-Fage story uh, has been a while since we've talked. Exactly. Let's, uh, let's let them look behind the curtain. So um, this week on the April 21st, 1984 episode of Miss South Wrestling, we have at the desk Jim Ross, and unusually, Terry Taylor is on the right, and he's sporting a neck collar, courtesy of his, att- his attack at the hands of Butch Reed last week. Um, Ross says this week we have a tag team title match between the Midnight Express and the Rock and Wild Express, plus Stagger Lee versus Mr. Wrestling. Um, and Hacksaw Butch Reed is here along with Masaito as well. Um, Ross, uh, we'll go through this, but it'll be interesting to hear your thoughts in a second. But Ross is a thrill to be there with Terry Taylor. He said that his effort last week was one of the most gallant he's ever seen in his time watching wrestling. Um, and Taylor said the money was secondary, but the title was the most important because it was for the people. And he felt like he let the people down. Um, Khrushchev doesn't represent the people and therefore he shouldn't have the title. And Ross says that a lesser man wouldn't have made it. Um, and Taylor adds that he couldn't have done it without the fans and that they've been behind him since the day he arrived in Midtown. I found the Jim Ross um, kind of compliments to Taylor a little bit sickly and slightly OTT here. What, what did you think of this? Well, this brings me back to a statement I made before on a previous podcast, maybe number 11 we did, where I made a statement that you found a little bit surprising, and I do want to mm. end that statement. But remember I said that at that time for us, Terry Taylor was the most popular and more popular. Yes. Yeah. You can see here where they're really pushing Terry to be that uh, main main face. Now, obviously, in the just few short years to come, Magnum TA rises to the absolute top of NWA status, and obviously they're going to push him, groom him to be the, the NWA champion, even if it's just for a short period of time, he might be the baby face with somebody seal where they trade the title a couple of times. So I'm not saying... I'm just saying at that moment in this year of 84, Terry Taylor was much more of a crowd favorite than Magnum TA. Magnum TA would eventually surpass that. But here you can see where Terry Taylor's getting that push. Ross is doing everything he can to help Watts get Taylor more and more popular and more and more over. Yeah, absolutely. And, and just, just interestingly, um, Taylor is around in this promotion for about another um, 14 or 15 months before he uh, moves over to Mid-Atlantic Championship Wrestling. I don't know if he came back after, after that point, um, but was that, fast-forwarding to 85, was that quite a big deal when he when he was no more? In, he, he did come back and actually look, looking forward. He was in the UWF in um, in uh, 86, uh, maybe back to 85. No, so predominantly 85 was spent in Mid-Atlantic, but he did, he did come back um, towards the back end of 85 but was it was that quite a big deal when he was he wasn't around too much anymore or not at all actually by the looks of things here so I'm, i know that it had to have been because he was so popular mm-hmm. but we were you know you're used to you're used to people coming and going by that time it, yeah i guess there's probably a lot more of that i mean now um 
you know, if someone big in WWE went to AEW or vice versa, I think that would be quite a big deal. But actually, back then, I presume guys were moving around all over the place because they had such such choice. Didn't they? So it was it was really different when they went to different territories. When they, to us, they were still part of the bigger NWA. Maybe they were just chasing someone down. Maybe they're going for a certain title, but they were still part of our organization. Oh, okay. So, so actually, did, did you as, as as fans, it wasn't so much the kind of the 90s thing where people, people if someone would leave ECW, was typically the one for WCW particularly. It'd be like the whole, you sold out and all that sort of stuff. So, it's not, not obviously the selling out bit, but actually, did, did people didn't react in a negative way if a wrestler leaving their local promotion so much and going somewhere not else. A, it was just part, not part, of, it. part of the NWA. If they went from... Yeah. Georgia to Mid South or vice versa, or, or even at that time WCCW still part of the NWA. You know, it was it was a it was a huge deal when WCCW pulled out of the NWA when Fritz wanted to do yeah. that was amazing. You know, that was terrible. But no, just to the difference, and we didn't call them territories back then. We didn't have the jargon. But mm. uh, no, it wasn't wasn't nearly as much because they knew they could. They were still part of the NWA. It'd just be like on. Different teams of the of your same football league. So that was um, I didn't know this. I just looked it up. Interestingly, in terms of sort of looking at the timings of this, because these are these are a really interesting few years. So um, it was February '86 when Fritz von Erich withdrew um, world class from the NWA. So we're we're you know a little bit a little bit less than two years on from this point. But um, yeah, lots lots going on around around this time. Um, so they recap the angle from last week. Um, it's back to Ross, and he says it's awfully hard for him to see the pile driver on the floor that um, Taylor was inflicted with. Um, and they, they cut to clips on the match. Um, Ross continues, um, again, a little bit OTT, but he said he's just so proud to be out there sitting with Taylor. Um, and then out of nowhere um, comes Eaton Condry. And this is the first time I've heard them speak. Um, actually, yes. Condry says that, yeah, which is interesting, wasn't it? Condry says that something fishy is going on around there because Cornette can't be found. Uh, and they just don't have any matches without their manager. Um, Ross says they signed the contract and they're going to have a match with Connors Brown or not. Um, I thought this was actually really good because this I didn't know it was I don't know what is happening in any of these these matches in terms of finishes. And actually last week I thought that Taylor was going to win the, the TV title tournament as well. Actually I didn't, I didn't even touched on that, but that, I, don't, I don't know why I thought I think I thought that because it seemed like the natural thing to do. Yes. And I'd also thought I'd seen that somewhere as well, but obviously, obviously not. But this bit with um, the Midnight Express not being able to find Cornette, this this got my, you know, wrestling spider senses tingling and thinking, are they going to switch the titles here? What, what did you think of this kind of device to throw a bit of jeopardy on the Midnight Express here? Oh, yeah, highly unusual. Made you, mm. uh, we didn't know because, you know, sometimes when a, a wrestler would disappear – they really were gone, and there was no explanation. Uh, yeah. If, well, did Cornette move on to something? What happened? We didn't know if they're, you know, sometimes you go to a house show expecting a certain person to show up, a certain wrestler was advertised, but then their plane connection didn't hit, their plane was late. Yeah. So they yeah, always yeah. Hard. So you're wondering maybe, well, maybe Jim Cornette couldn't make the plane ride in or something. Had no idea. Okay, interesting. So, so first up, we have a real treat um, in the second running of the Battle of the Expresses on Mid-South Television. And it's the first time it's been for the Mid-South Tag Team Championships. Um, rock and roll is king hits, and the ladies in the crowd are going wild as ever as Ricky Morton and Robert Gibson make their way out. Black trunks, white boots, and a white vest. And now the Midnight Express are their brilliant theme by the same name. Um, and they take their time getting to the ring with the belts around their waist. Um, 
poor Dennis Condry's plaster that was on last week. Presumably these two shows would take back to back. Um, his plaster starts to peel off his head. Um, this is one fall of television time remaining. I always like that when they when the title matches on early in the show and they, they, they talk about television time remaining. I know the likelihood of it. I don't know if there are any... Actually, interesting, interesting. Were, were there? Can you recall any particularly long matches around this period that did did take up most of an episode? Was that ever used as a, as a device at this time? It seems like there might have been a time where you only got one or two matches, and then there were times where something would... And so soon, I always had so many standby matches. It seems like there are times where we got into the, you know, the fourth or fifth standby match. So it's yeah, like, yeah. How many standby matches can you have? Yeah, and I think that's interesting why they did that because they, 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 they I think the, the thinking behind that was to say, you know, the title match is the focus here, and if it goes the whole show, we'll, we'll stay with it. But these, these are why these are called standby matches rather than announcing seven matches uh, and you know they've got to come after after the title match i think that's a decent way of doing it actually um ross says that Cornet is very conspicuous by his absence here and taylor um says that these are the two best tag teams in all of wrestling um there's some great initial exchanges fast as lightning between morton um and i i just noted down i found i found myself watching this and really hoping the rock and roll express was going to we're going to win the titles here for the historical significance and also to see the reaction of the crowd which i imagine would, would be would be great. Um, so there's a perfect drop toe hold by Gibson on Eaton as the Rock and Roll take over. Um, Eaton makes it out and comes Condry for the first time. Um, he gets on top with a rake of the eyes and a big elbow. Um, however, the good guys take back over again with Eaton starts with Condry's leg. Um, Condry makes it back to the sanctuary of his corner and backs it back in comes Eaton. Uh, Morton takes over again and gets Eaton down with a headlock and then Eaton makes his way to his feet and ends up hitting a great drop kick. Um, the momentum swings back in favour of the champions as Condry works over Morton before he gets back in and grinds him down with the front face lock. Um, Morton kicks out a two after a big elbow for Condry, and then after a melee with all four men, Morton gets eaten down for a visionary pin with a roll-up, but the ref is distracted. And what appears to be a woman then comes out of the, of the back into the ring and smacks Morton over the head with a lo- what appears to be a loaded purse. Um, on getting out of the ring, the lady's wig falls off, and she's revealed to be Jim Cornette. Um, what did you think of this? This is this is uh, a bit out there, but I, I guess I can understand why they did it. It was really strange, and yeah, Jim Ross uses a term that now would be almost be considered derogatory, but he uses a term, yeah. and I don't think I'd ever heard. I don't think I understood that term. I don't think I'd ever heard that term. I might have been too sheltered, but when he says Cornette really came out of the closet. Yeah, he said it a couple of times, didn't he? Which, which, which you're absolutely right. Well, I, I'm sure you heard this on, a, on an earlier episode. But we, we, uh, one of the one of the guest hosts I had on, we talked about some of the some of the language, and I think you know um, that is it's 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 time and place, isn't it? And it's um, but it is strange to hear that sort of thing in with with, with today's lens, isn't it? Um, and, it and and Ross says it a couple of times. I think this was just a. This was purely a, a heat device on Jim Cornette because there was no reason for him to come out dressed as a woman. Um, they could have done the whole thing um, with him coming out and hitting someone, whatever. Yeah, yeah, um, yeah it was just pure heat device, wasn't it? It was. Um, uh, and, you know, at the time, I would have, I, I guess they were, what I was thinking was they were saying, well, maybe Jim is a crossdresser, which would have been, yeah. that would have been something at at that time, in this location, looked down upon. Just get more heat. Find a way to get more heat on Cornette. Uh, the fact that it may mean uh, he had a different sexual preference 
I don't think I, I caught that. I don't think that's what that meant. Because obviously, now that's what it means. But, you know, different. it's just a different time and place, and, and it didn't seem all that derogatory, but now it seems highly inflammatory. Yeah, I, th- I think again. I, I said a few, said a few weeks ago. I, I think you can't you can't just. Um, I'm not sure how to, how to how to put this really, but I think this stuff you've got to understand time and place, uh, and it's not just the um, these sort of comments. It's also some of the you know the USA and Russia stuff as well. Um, time and place, uh, as as I mentioned a few weeks ago, there's there's films from the turn of you know the 90s into the 2000s things like friends i mean crikey there's there's a big uproar with um with friends in one of the one of the episodes where um ross's wife ends up leaving him for another woman and there's there's a, there's a lot of stuff in that that just would be considered you know so out so out of you know so far away from being politically correct um in 2020 as, as everyone's sort of views and right. minds evolve but I, I think you can't i don't think you can get too um too stuck on some of these things from 36 years ago i think it just is is what it is where it needs a comment and you can have a comment but it's um it's, it's just really time and place isn't it and, I, and, and thankfully in these shows there's there's not too much of it um that it becomes a real big distraction um but but i think things like this as you, as you mentioned things like this do stick out a little bit like a sore thumb now now that they, that's they, just how things have evolved yeah they stick out now at the time it wasn't as insulting as it might sound like it meant to be yeah yeah absolutely um, so at the desk, Ross and uh, this is this was really funny. This next bit. So at the desk, Ross and Taylor are sat there um, with Jim Cornette's wig and the brown leather handbag, which contained a large rock. Um, and Taylor, Taylor was just brilliant here. He he he's sitting there with his with his neck collar on, large glasses on, and he just shakes his head in disgust about what he's just seen. I just thought Taylor. Taylor was a bit rough on commentary, I thought. Um, I think, obviously, he's, he's still fairly new into wrestling at this point, but his facial expressions here was just, was just phenomenal. What, what did you think of this, um, this little follow-up here with the, with the wig and the, the, um, the rock? Yeah, he was, he was almost speechless. He did a good job. Yeah. He's, not, he's not, as you say, he's not polished. He's not good, but uh, he did a good job of conveying his disbelief of what he just saw, how outrageous this was. Um, so we have another appearance now from the new Mr. Wrestling 2. He's up against Steve Brinson. And Ross says that he's a little bit speechless about what he's just seen. And, and Taylor adds that he can't believe that Cornette would stoop so low. Um, I, I don't know, what, what was Cornette... Going back to this angle, and this is the thing I thought about afterwards, what was, what was he trying... So forget the... Um, uh, forget any of the stuff around what, what Jim Ross said. What was he actually trying to achieve by doing this and hitting someone with a purse dressed as a woman was he trying to if you if you take this back as a real as this is all real he's a manager of a tag team that's tag team champions and he's saving his his tag team champions from losing the titles was he just trying to dress up as a woman so that ultimately he didn't get beaten up for doing this and it appeared to be somebody oh, else was yeah. that was that the thinking yeah i think the thinking was it was just a disguise he was trying to yeah. hide maybe it was just a disguise trying to not let people know it was him that was, you know, cheating for his team and someone else. Yeah, and, I guess that does make sense, doesn't it, actually? Now we've, we've somebody wouldn't, someone's not going to hit a woman, you know. He That's was, a really good point, actually. Yeah, that is a really, really good point. So she could get in there and they'd be, they'd be surprised um, and then she could okay. get away with it, yeah. Whereas if yeah, that makes a lot of sense. up on the edge of the ring, they'd pop him in the mouth. But yeah, yeah, yeah. Touching. Oh well, you solved it there, Phil. That's that's exactly the reason. I, I, 
that's one of the rare occasions where they the, the commentators didn't sort of explain something like this. But I think I think that that, that taps into the explanation following that. Um, so there's a huge clothesline from Wrestling Two on Brinson that nearly takes his head off. Um, he hits a nice looking suplex before attempts to put Brinson in a backbreaker. Um, but this is just um, and I feel, I feel for um, the future Hercules Hernandez here because Brinson's a big guy um, and he just can't quite keep hold of him. He staggers back, he loses Brinson, he slips out, falls into the ropes. And Wrestling Two goes to the cover. Brinson puts his foot on the ropes. On the Wrestling Two hits. Yeah, yeah. On the botch maneuver. And you mentioned this sometimes with uh, Volkov uh, and the press. No. Actually, sometimes a botched maneuver added credibility, meaning these moves are difficult to do. Uh, the other guy's not necessarily cooperating. Does that make sense? Yeah, I, I think I think sometimes um, these botches can be covered up very well, and I think it does make it does make complete sense that he goes for a backbreaker and can't quite get get him up. Um, but he, he does show his frustration here. See, after after he hits this suplex, he smashes the mat, which uh, reminded me of Orton and um, Kobe Kingston years later, where there was well, not quite the same thing, but um, a slight botch in the finish of, of a match between those two, and around it pounded the mat. Um, but he gets the pinfall victory in 153. I thought he looked really good until until this end. Um, and, and actually, they, the guys probably did a pretty good job to improvise here for a different finish. Uh, what, what did you think of this second showing of, Mr., of the new Mr. Wrestling 2? Well, he was still very impressive. Yeah. And when when Wrestling 2 earlier said, in the it, you know, the, the person I've been training for two years, what we thought at that time, oh, you're, you're blunt. Well, obviously, he hadn't been, right? But... We thought Mr. Two was just trying to bluff people and, and put the scare. Of course, the guy, he pointed out, he's got his bigger arms, bigger chest, he's stronger, uh, training for two years. We're like, well, yeah, we don't, you're just trying to get you bluffed in. Yeah. But, but he was a very impressive, uh, in all of wrestling, he was one of the most, at that time, one of the most impressive specimens. De- definitely. Um, so Duggan and Khrushchev is up next to the television title um, and in some ways um, the matches within Hearts and Talent you, I feel it maybe sounds a little bit better because you know you're going to get a finish so on these I do find myself just sort of waiting for what's the angle and where's where's this going really which, which is which is fair enough I understand why they use these to advance advance the angles um, so there's a fast start here um, for the bell and wild shots being thrown by both um, and Duggan hits a deadly looking close on right to the face of Khrushchev, um, which looks great. Um, Duggan goes for his big spear move and misses. Um, and Khrushchev makes it back to his feet and moves Duggan back into the corner of the choke. Um, Taylor puts over how strong his, uh, Khrushchev is in commentary, which looks great. Um, he's very softly spoken um, and does a decent job here, though, as, as we've, we've touched on. He's not hugely polished. Um, Khrushchev drops Duggan's neck over the top rope and then hits a big body slam. Um, a couple of body checks follow before Duggan sidesteps one, hurls Khrushchev into the top rope. He fires back with big punches in the corner before being reversed, and he hits the big spear of the second rope. And instead of going for the pin, he mounts and lands punches. Um, and Volkov then hits the ring for the DQ in 302, um, and he smashes Duggan with a coal miner's glove. And Taylor tries to make the save. Butchery cuts him off and hurls him into the post. And um, in ring, Khrushchev is then shaving the beard of Jim, Ro- uh, Jim Duggan as Ross screams out. And um, he has some electric clippers and cutting the beard. Ross says that Duggan is out, but he seems to be wide awake, has a crazy look in his eyes. And um, Ross says that this is the absolute humiliation for Duggan. And um, I thought Ross was great here. And um, everyone in the crowd is standing. And some of the members of the audience are right at ringside here. Um, so obviously this, this is a really emotive angle for the crowd here in Shreveport. Um, Magnum TA and Robert Gibson hit the ring for the save. 
Um, and Terry Taylor had actually been tied to the ring post here and there's utter pandemonium as Ross screams. Duggan can't believe it. And I thought this is a really great touch. Magnetier actually tries to hold him in an embrace um, and he does for a moment before Duggan breaks away. Um, this was quite an angle. We've not seen something like this for a little while and it was a re-establishment of babyfaces in the heels and the main feuds. So what did you think of this crazy melee at the end of the Duggan and Khrushchev match? Oh, it was an absolute riot. We hadn't seen anything yeah. like it. No. I mean, that, that crowd was so close to the ring then. I, I just haven't seen anything like it. I noticed that work. they were right yeah. up on the ring, and it's not too much later after this that you'll notice they installed some, the ring is going to have some bars around it. Oh, uh, is it? And this is probably resulted from this then, I think. Probably. Yeah. It, it might be a, a, a few months or so, but I remember then later there being um, bars, not, uh, yeah, so just something minor, but it can keep them back, you know. They, they yeah. But the, the fans got very, very close. They're very emotionally involved. Uh, yeah. I think if the babyface hadn't been out to save this, I think someone would have got, got in there. Because cause you, you're only that close for one reason. You're close that you're that close because you're thinking about making a step, really. Um, and there was lots of them as well. So they, they just about managed to restore order here. But just, just nuclear heat, really, um, in, in a really to, good angle. Listening to some of Jim Cornette's shoot interviews now on, on these days, it was Tulsa in Oklahoma City where they first installed what we call cattle shoots, where they could safely walk to and Tulsa literally would have riots. Oklahoma City could get bad at the house shows. You wouldn't see it on television, but they would literally have a shoot, uh, what we call a cattle shoot, a, a barrier where they could walk from the dressing room to the ring with barriers on each side. That was used to be a big open arena. Uh, yeah, yeah, wrestlers would walk through. Wrestlers would walk through the the folding chairs. Uh, you know, but uh, they're very accessible. But that seemed to come to an end here. Yeah, and you, and you can you can really see why. Um, so after the break, we have Hacksaw Butchery and Buddy Landau, who become something of a semi-regular tag team, and they are going against Lanny Poffo and John King. Um, Jim Ross asks to be excused if he appears to be speechless. And he said that they've had some of the most bizarre and unpredictable things he's ever experienced sitting at a desk in the last hour. Uh, his, sorry, sitting at that desk. I'm not talking about, I, I don't think he had too many unpredictable things happen to him while he's sitting at a desk at school. So I should clarify that. Um, so Jim Ross recaps some of the things we've seen. Um, and that Duggan had his beard, not just for appearance sake, but as a symbol of the way he lives his life. And we've not heard the last of that. Um, Ross describes Reed as being as talented as anyone who's accepted in the ring. Um, and Landell hits a, a nice running knee drop. Um, Poffo, again, he's, he's really um, not on the right side of things really here in terms of his push. He makes a tag to King, who briefly is on top until Reed gets in with a double boot. Landell hits a big elbow drop and appears to have him pinned, but pulls his shoulder up at two. And Reed then tags in and hits his jumping spear for winning three fours of five. Uh, not, a huge amount, not a huge amount to this one. What did you think overall of this uh, Landell and Reed combination? Let me, let me give you our... Back then, what our thoughts of Landell was, our impression of Buddy Landell. Mm. Um, obviously, a blatant ripoff of Ric Flair. Yes. We didn't yeah. feel like that. We, we felt like that he was trying to do that. Uh, we, we didn't feel like he was a very good wrestler at all. We didn't think he that he was trying to be hang around and, and tailgate or hang around the likes of Butch Reed and he does some things with Skandar Ekbar one time and some others where he's trying to be with the big boys but he's just not there and 
and we did that. Now, of course, I've heard Buddy Lindell in recent times say he he called Ric Flair and or talked with Ric Flair to make sure it was okay that I do this uh, imitation of you. And, and of course, Flair said, "Yeah, that'd be great." Of course, anytime anytime we saw Buddy Lindell, we naturally, consciously, and subconsciously thought of Ric Flair. Every yeah. time with Buddy Lindell, I'm thinking when Ric Flair's come back, we all thought, Buddy. Next time Ric Flair comes through town, he's going to catch you doing this, and he's going to he's going to take you out. We just yeah, thought yeah. we thought his time was limited trying to impersonate a great wrestler. So that was our impression of Buddy. He was in over his head. He was with he he was not didn't belong there, but he was pulling off this ruse that he was another nation boy. Yeah, no, absolutely. Um, so Masai Ito and Joe Savoldi's up next. Um, Ito is all over him from the start, running him into a corner in a body slam position, then to the ring mat. I think Ito's offense just looks brutal. Um, what, what do you think about this this guy overall? Everything he does just looks so so great, not in a bad way, but just looks very stiff. Yeah, he was a uh, scary guy at the time. Yeah, yeah. Those thrust to the throat and things. Absolutely. So ultimately, he hits the Insigiri type move, um, and then two thrust kicks and a splash for the win in one eighteen. Um, and then after the bell, Ito carries on attacking Savoldi um, and chokes him out. Um, he does he does a really great job selling this actually, Savoldi. Um, so Ito's gimmick was originally losing by DQ with this choke, um, but now they seem to switch it up to him winning and then choking afterwards, which is better. Um, now, um, bizarrely, though we are in standby match territory, we have Mr. Wrestling versus Stagger Lee. Um, so Mr. Wrestling is in ring and Lee comes out to the song with the name as, same name as him. Um, I didn't know this song, but I looked up and this, this was the version that was released by Lloyd Price in 1958. Um, oh. It was originally a folk, folk song about the murder of Billy Lyons by Stag Lee Shelton in Christ, uh, Christmas 1895. Do you know much about this this song or this story, Phil? Because it's not one I've heard before. Oh, no, it was a, it was a popular tune in the States. It got airplay, it got radio play. We knew it. Now, it was old. at that time, it was considered probably an oldie at that time, but they would play it on the oldies radio station. Okay. So it's interesting. Yeah. So I, I guess he's not, so I presume, um, I guess copyright and stuff. No, from, from something that was so old, it might not have been copyrighted at all. But he, the, the, but Junkyard Dog, I presume, took his name from the name of this song, I guess. Yes, absolutely. Yeah. Um, so, uh, Lee immediately attacks Mr. Wrestling before Bell can sound. Uh, Mr. Wrestling heads to the outside and protests the referee. I actually thought they were going to call this off here, but they didn't. Um, he makes it back in and Stagger Lee hits him with a really, um, difficult, shall we say, to be nice looking clothesline. Um, he then traps Mr. Wrestling in a headlock and follows up with a choke. Um, this is, I, ju- I just found this a little bit odd. I know they mentioned this right at the start of the, of the episode, but this, this, this seems a bit out of nowhere that you've got the champion and, and, and top baby face, I guess, really, um, along with Bill Watson, maybe underneath, obviously, Taylor and Magnetier, um, just at the end of an episode where so much stuff's happened. But regardless, Mr. Wrestling gets back on top and applies his own choke hold, and Ross confirms this is a non-title encounter. And Stagger Lee hits two big headbutts and a power slam, but Mr. Wrestling kicks out. So that was that was Stagger Lee's or JYD's finishing move, wasn't it? That power slam, I believe. Yes. And those yeah. heads, it's when I was watching now, of course, back back in the eighties as we'd watch wrestling, there was a number of African American wrestlers who would use the headbutt, and the K story was the black man's skull, well, I don't know, are they saying it's denser or thicker? Or harder than the average person. Now I just don't think that would fly as well. No, no, no. 
yeah. They did that a lot with the Samoan wrestlers and stuff as well, didn't they, in terms of, yeah. uh, I remember Haku yeah. and people and stuff, yeah. Um, so, yeah, I, I actually, I, when, it, when, when, it, when Lee hit this power slam, I actually thought that he might, they might be do, doing the, I don't know, doing, doing the Mr. Wrestling loss here, but, but then he kicks out. Um, and then after that, Mr. Wrestling 2 hits the ring. Um, and then after the referee is bumped at 2.23, um, both Mr. Wrestlings then try and take the mask off Stagger Lee before Magnum TA comes out and makes the save. Um, both of the Mr. Wrestlings leave the ring. Um, so what did you think of this, this short encounter between Lee and Mr. Wrestling here? It's quite a surprise to have that match. At the first, certainly as a, as a standby match, and we're wondering this, if they need to cover some TV time and his matchmaker, Grizzly Smith, back there just throwing things together. And yeah, yeah. Very, very kind of it? But at this time, if you were watching other territories, and I've had memories now, so you talked and you got me back into thinking about my days. I remember now watching Capital Wrestling. In, in oh, Florida, okay, yeah. Which was previous to the WWF. Hmm. You never saw two top stars together on TV. You just didn't. It was you never had two major wrestlers going at it. It was always the television was always and in the tri in the in the tri-state area that we had back in the seventies. It seemed like you'd have you a, a really good heel against a, a jobber or a really good face against the jobber. So this yeah yeah. And, and this, this interestingly, um, and actually not just, I was going to say, this interestingly became really the format for Nitro um, in, in the mid-90s um, and how they sort of took hold in the, in the Monday Night Ratings War because they would pr- um, predominantly have um, big matches between name talent and no finishes. And, and actually Raw did this a lot as well um, there afterwards. Actually now... Um, you've gone from that to a situation where everyone wrestles everyone and everyone beats everyone sometimes. Everyone beat, and then they, they, they trade victories the whole time. And I, I, I'm not sure. I think I probably tolerate that a bit more. But if, if every, every win loss doesn't be mean anything, it, doesn't, it just doesn't mean anything. And there's no point having the match. Right. Um, so Jim Ross recaps some of the things that took place during the episode. And then Stagger Lee approaches the desk and, and says that him and Magnum TA want Mr. Wrestling to them to tell Bill Watts. Um, yeah, I, I thought that the, the this was a, a really interesting show, and I thought the angle with Duggan was really, really well done. Um, the corner stuff's a little bit weird, um, but again, again, I guess at the time that put a lot more a lot more heat on him. Um, and I, I do like these um, these angles that Mid South do, where they really establish the feuds and establish the lines. So they establish the alliances on the babyface side and establish the alliances on the heel side as well. And that, and that angle um, and Jim Ross. As always, which is fantastic during this. So, what did you think of this uh, this uh, episode, Bill? The um, the April twenty first episode. It was all very good, and compared to the previous one, when there's less recap, it seems to be a little bit better. I think we probably enjoyed it a little bit more. Um, yeah, I agree. I have a um, a, a couple of thoughts as we talk about mid south wrestling, and I wanted to ask you a couple of questions about, for example, in a couple of previous episodes. Jim Cornette refers to Bill Watts as the feudist building before the last stampede. He refers to Bill Watts as Matt Dillon or Sheriff Dillon. Do people in the UK understand what this reference is? Is that popular? Oh, I, don't, I don't. So please, please tell me because I, I didn't, I didn't understand that one. No. Okay, Matt Dillon is a fictional character. He was a sheriff. He was a, actually a, a marshal. There's a television show called uh, Gunsmoke. And this, ah. this TV show ran for probably 20 years from the 50s to the 70s. It went from black and white to color. 
And back then there was it was not much on television. Everybody watched Gunsmoke. Well, the main character was a was a, a U.S. Marshal. That's Matt Dillon. That's that's ah. We referred Gunsmoke to was the was the television show that was. I know I know it's a kayfabe record that Raw's got, but it was the it was the longest running episodic television show in American history um, that, that was be, beaten by Raw. I think wasn't it? Yeah, yeah, yeah absolutely. Yeah. Um, also, that uh, they when when Duggan comes out uh, sometimes, or Duggan's uh, taking the lumber to somebody. Both Bill Watts and Jim Ross say he's walking tall. Yes, yeah. Yes. You know the reference to walking tall. So is that the? Is that the, the? There's a there's a film walking tall, isn't it? Is that is that something to do with that, or, or is it well, on the looking well, they're, they're referring to a movie that was made in the seventies that was remade with The Rock. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. The the Walking Tall story was based on a true story of a of a, another law enforcement, probably a sheriff of a small town, and it was played by Joe Don Baker, and he played a uh, Buford Husser, but he would carry a, a big stick too. So when they say he's walking tall, they're saying he's a man alone taking care of the bad guys, and they'll say walking. Oh, how interesting! So, yeah, that's referring to a movie from the seventies. Which later that was remade probably in the early two thousand. Whenever one, whenever when The Rock went to to doing movies, he play, he re, he replayed that role. That's what that. Yeah, about. it was a, it was an, it was certainly an early Rock um, Rock uh, thing. I think if I had to guess, I'm going to look this up. I'm going to guess two thousand and three. Let's go that two thousand four. <laughs> oh, okay. So close. Very good. <laughs> yeah, and the other the original was made in probably the mid seventies. Seventy three. Okay. Yeah. So, um, also in, whenever we watch wrestling from Irish and Mills Boys Club there in Shreveport, some of the fans you see quite often. I would love yes. if someone like uh, Al or someone that's doing all this research. There is always a young man wearing a Doctor X mask. For years, he's in the studio audience. I would love to get a chance to talk to that guy. Well, if that's if that's you and you're listening at mid moments on uh, on Twitter, get get involved and we'll, we'll put you put you guys to that. I'm try, I'm trying to reach out to people on on Twitter because especially at the moment, a lot of people are at home and are watching Mid South Wrestling. So typically, what I do is if if someone's tweeted about it, I'll find them and I'll follow them. So I don't well, do that. That's how you found me. Yeah, yeah, exactly, exactly, exactly. So that I, I think they're. The community is growing, and I think actually, what better time if you're if you've got more time on your hands going forward than to dive into this really exciting time of this promotion? So, because there's so much going on, and it is really such easy. It's really easy watching 45 minute shows, um, which are which are which are great. I think. Absolutely, I'd love to hear from anybody that was in those those audiences. Yeah, well, I'll, I'll I'll tweet out your um your handle as well when when the when the shows are posted as well, Phil. So yeah, absolutely, and um I encourage people to, to people to reach out because we're always looking for for new guest hosts and stuff, and, and we'll we'll definitely do this um do this again in a, in the future, Phil. And uh, I really really appreciate you coming on again and and doing this week and obviously last week as well. So so really thank you very much again. Do you, do you have any any clo- sort of closing thoughts or anything to add before we uh before we we go back into isolation and quarantine. Sure. Um, only one thing I was thinking about when we first started this episode: um, the music. You mentioned the music with Stagger Lee, and, and yes, yeah. Okay. Anytime they played any of those um, 
videos, whether it's Terry Taylor or the Rock and Roll Express, and they're doing the little music vignettes. That was absolutely the most popular songs of the day. Okay, now, yeah. But but the opening music, which now I found out is, is Jeff Beck, the opening theme, this was kind of music we did not have any way of getting to hear. Uh, remember, there's no internet. Uh, All we got is, at this point, we're switching over from changing our vinyl albums to cassette tapes. Because we can yes, take the, yeah. get the, I got a, you know, I got me a car in an eighty with a cassette player in it, right? So, um, we'd never heard anything like that, unless you had an eccentric friend. I remember the first time I'd, I'd heard maybe Frank Zappa or someone like this. You remember that because all you had was a few radio stations, and it was you know one country, one classical, one top forty, and that's all you heard. So when that music would hit at the start of any mid south episode that was just it was like exciting and uplifting and then one thing on Boyd suits since the the cut the style not the color of Boyd suits and then on the next episode Cornette has a wonderful line about and I'm just going to go ahead and spoil it you'll use he's in this his his pants are solid lime green his jacket (laughs) is a swirl of white and green and Cornette looks at him and says, you look like an Easter basket without the jelly beans. I mean, it looks like the grass in the, in the bottom of the Easter basket. <laughs> now, the colors were different and eccentric, but that style of suit, the cut, that square jacket, that was really what a lot of ranchers and farmers wore. If you would go to the cattle auction, uh, maybe uh, at the fairgrounds where we also have wrestling, you would see guys wearing that that cut and that style. Now, the colors were, were way different. Don't know where he got them, but I just want to throw that in because that's always something we talk about in every episode is Boyd Suits. And Yeah, so, so do you think potentially this this one um, coming up next week is going to break the Boyd Pierce fashionometer? Uh, this this is going to be the eight-star wrestling match, isn't it? What, potentially this suit. Which one, which which suit was it that's, that's got the top spot? Um, I think it was the purple, the purple plaid one, maybe, I think. Yeah, this it's is a, gonna, it, uh, for me. It's, it's all, just about as good. Yeah, you're gonna. Have yeah, to, okay. Well, I look, I look forward to that. Sadly, my notes from those shows are on the laptop that I um I took into repair just before about oh. two two or three weeks ago before everything happened here in London, and I I wonder if I'm ever gonna see those notes ever again. So I can't look back, sadly. So yeah, that's uh, that's unfortunate. Um, but yeah, no, I'll keep I'll keep a keen eye out for that. Um for that uh that that uh, suit next week and just to let you know uh, and also everyone else what we've got coming up next week so um i originally planned for a couple of my my friends who i've known for a long time and used to travel to wrestlemania's with in fact went, went one of the guys to wrestlemania last year in uh new jersey and um, they were coming down to london to watch wrestlemania live with me but clearly oh. obviously now they can't do that so oh. um so next week we're going to do a, uh, and this will be ready for WrestleMania Saturday. And one of the things I must look up is whether there's ever been a WrestleMania on a Saturday before, and I don't know the answer. Interesting. Yeah. yeah, so I'm going to look that up. But we're going to have a, a WrestleMania quiz, um, and we're going to review the the next episode. So please, please have a, have a listen out for that. And the winner of the quiz um, is going to be presented. Well, actually, they're not going to be presented. We won't be in person. The, the prize is 
an original program, WrestleMania 2. Um, and I know one of my friends is, is far more knowledgeable about wrestling than I am. And I suspect that, that WrestleMania 2 program is me leaving my house never to be seen yeah, again. Be so fun. that's something to look forward to next week. And Phil, thank you so much again thank for your you. time. And we'll definitely do this again in the future. I really appreciate it. Have a great day. Thank you very much. Thank you. Thank you very much for listening to this week's episode. If you've enjoyed the podcast, please head over to iTunes where you can subscribe and perhaps you'll even be kind enough to leave me a lovely five-star review, which would absolutely make my day. If you're interested in guest hosting, please contact me via the Mid-South Moments Twitter account, which is at MidMoments, and I look forward to speaking to you all again very, very soon.